presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Uh, welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I'm the chairman of the board of the Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us. Today's guests include current Colorado Speaker of the House, Casey Becker. Casey, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. And Mike Cott, President and CEO of Colorado Concern. Mike, it's great to have you on board. Thanks, Earl. I appreciate that. Uh, both bring a robust understanding of Colorado policy and how businesses and legislators are working together to build a better Colorado. And we're fortunate to have the two of you with us today. Casey, let's start off with you. Madam Speaker, uh, you just wrapped up a special session of the legislature this week. Uh, what were the big takeaways for Coloradoans that we should be aware of? And uh, what do you feel were the main accomplishments? Thanks, Earl, for the question. So we did have a three-day special session. The governor called us back into session because we, uh, as a state, ended up with additional revenue that we hadn't planned for. Last um, June, when we passed the state budget, we always passed the budget based on an economic forecast. And that forecast underestimated the amount of revenue that would come into the state. But given the federal stimulus, the federal PPP program, the CARES Act, all of those things that kept people employed, kept them paying income tax, kept uh, them buying goods and paying sales tax, state revenue was higher. And since then, Colorado hasn't, uh, I'm sorry, Congress hasn't acted with additional relief because of the pandemic. So the governor said this revenue came in, let's get it out to Coloradans. And that's what we did. And the legislation we passed about 10 bills, all were very bipartisan. Um, we did things that included about $105 million for small business relief, around $40 million for rental assistance and mortgage assistance support for broadband for school districts, utility assistance, support for child care, you know, just a whole host of bills that I think um, really will get out quickly and be really helpful uh, to people throughout Colorado um, as we, you know, continue to deal with this pandemic. Madam Speaker, just a couple of follow-up questions. You mentioned additional funding that came in. Now, was any of that funding out of the federal stimulus package that came directly to the state that you were allocating? Or was it all from uh, uh, taxpayers like you and me and Mike with regards to uh, additional taxes we paid in? Where did it come from? It all came It all came from the state general fund. So the money that came in from the federal government that the state had purview over was has already been um, allocated. You know, a lot went to... The, the bulk of that money that came in in the, in the spring went to K-12 education, higher education, and local governments, and then state response, you know, for testing and, and things like that. So that money all went out. And, but, you know, what it enabled and what the PPP program and other, you know, UI checks to people really meant is that the, the income to the state ended up higher than what was forecasted. So we cut nearly over $3 billion from the state budget, which is, you know, we cut almost 20, 25%, a huge amount, and revenue came in higher than expected. So, so that's what we did. In this special session, we spent about 
$300 million um, getting it out to, to business and individuals throughout Colorado. Well, that $300 billion, I noted that part of it was funding the, the state, and I believe the governor has the authority to kind of fund it the way he wants. How much guidance is he getting from you uh, in the legislature, or is this something that uh, we're going to have a chance to hear the governor talk about as he plans to use those funds in the future? How uh, Explain how that money might be used for us, if you would, please. Yeah, absolutely. So the... Um... The bill that you're referring to was to fund the disaster emergency fund. And so under existing law, when there's a um, an emergency order, the governor has access to the Z- disaster emergency fund. And obviously with the pandemic and with the fires we had this summer, there was a lot of uh, need for disaster emergency. And so that fund was depleted and the governor asked for a um, hundred million dollars a lot of it really is going to be spent on continuing to test people for COVID. So the state has stood up centers across the, across the state to test people for free for coronavirus. So, you know, I think they're doing about 25,000 tests a day. Insurance isn't covering it. Individuals aren't. The state is. So that's part of it. The state's buying personal protective equipment, PPE, and also standing up temporary emergency um, hospital beds in different locations. So there's a huge cost to that. And then obviously because of the fires, there was also a uh, use of the disaster emergency fund for that reason. The, the legislature doesn't have a lot of authority over that. The bill did specify that the money had to be spent on coronavirus related items. And a lot of um, what'll happen is that FEMA um, the Federal Emergency Management Administration will reimburse a lot of what we're spending right now, but that can take years for the state to get that money back. So the governor will have $100 million. And and there isn't, you know, it's, it is a, a bit of an anomaly. There's just not a lot of legislative oversight over that um, because the governor does have broad discretion to, to spend it on um, emergency uh, emergency needs. Madam Speaker, one last follow-up before I move to Mike. Uh, I noted in some of the legislation that we had uh, timelines. The money had to be spent by a certain time. What happens to that money if it hasn't been spent by, by the uh, deadline that you all put in the legislation? Yeah, we did put deadlines in, in each bill, and that's because we want the money to get out quickly. You know, it really is one-time funding to respond to, you know, what's currently going on, which is, uh, you know, people unemployed or, or decreased employment because of COVID. So we want that money to go out quickly. If the entities can't get it out quickly and they reach the deadline, then the money reverts to the general fund. Terrific. Hey, thank you. Uh, Mike, let's follow up with you right now. Business executives across the state have got some real challenges. Um, I can speak to that a little bit. What are you hearing from your members about uh, what uh, was accomplished at the Capitol this week with uh, Madam Speaker and her colleagues? Thanks, Earl. Well, first, I I would like to just commend uh, my friend, the Speaker, Casey. Uh, She and I have had a longstanding and cordial relationship, even though we're quite often fierce uh, debate partners. I just want to pause here, if you, if you will allow, and and just offer one perspective about what just took place. It's, it's really unusual to have uh, a special session emerge so quickly 
um, and have it executed. So, I mean, almost flawlessly, really. You had, you had leaders from both sides rally immediately to the idea, get their names on the bills, get the bills drafted and not a lot of, uh, kind of the usual rancor that can lead to dysfunction. So, you know, with, with kind of the end in mind, getting relief out to, uh, small businesses, et cetera. Um, I, I think you, you all have done really well for yourselves. And I, I'd just like to say a word of uh, congratulations and thanks to the speaker for that. Uh, Mike, are you running for office again? Yeah, it sounds like it. No, it's just rewarding when you see our system work the way that it can. You know, it doesn't always work that well. Yeah, no, really, it's, it's, it's terrific. Um, That's super nice, and uh, I appreciate it, and it was really bipartisan, so thank you. Yes, uh, you're welcome. Uh, I would say this, Earl, you know, true to form, the CEO community is always looking out three, five, six, uh, nine, 12 months, you know, and then years. And so, naturally, there already have been continuing to look ahead and scan the horizon. And I think the thing that I continue to hear from our members is just CEOs around the state in general is it's all about predictability. They understand there's this rather cataclysmic health event that has taken place. That's, that's well known by everybody, of course. And so, so the issue is help us, you know, public policy professionals, regulators help us by being really clear and plain with us about what you intend to do and give us input, help us innovate throughout this process. There's a lot of, a, a lot of appreciation uh, for the, for the work that was done this week in the special session, specifically on the small business uh, bill in particular, because I think, I think the general reflection of the CEO community is, look, the government has told us to take these steps to close. We're closing, you know, through no fault of our own. So, now it's on you. And the, the difficult thing is, you know, in Colorado, unlike the federal government, we don't print money. So we just spend cash. And it, it seems to me uh, that the reflection of our uh, CEO members is that it was a good use of available revenue um, to get it into these small businesses to help them stay afloat. But, you know, as I started the, the answer, um, you know, they're looking ahead three, six, nine months, et cetera. We will move through that cash and the pandemic will still be around us. And we all know that. And there's there's nothing critical um, as an undertone in that comment. It's just that we're going to have to continue to navigate through this. I mean, the concern for the small business community is profound. I, I couldn't overstate it. I've spent a lot of time visiting with our CEOs about this and, um, it's good work. I don't dismiss it, um, but we need to obviously uh, keep at this work full tilt. I think with a really strong bias to innovate and stay as open as possible, more open maybe than we have, you know, as an aspiration. It's not like a dog whistle, like, you know, we need to be all open and ignore the pandemic. That's not what this is. It's just about getting uh, business leaders, like specific types of business leaders in these rooms where government officials are making decisions at the state and local level um, and working out solutions. They want to be a part. They want predictability. And, um, you know, it's it's really for kind of the long-term economic welfare of our citizens, obviously. Mike, I, I appreciate your answer, but I'm going to push you a little bit on this. And I'm glad that Madam Speaker is on to hear because she's so influential in the public policy arena. Mike, I, I, I hear you saying thank you for the financial help, but that's not the answer. The answer is 
somehow businesses have got to figure out how to get their doors open and the consumers feeling comfortable at the same time keeping society safe. Am I in the right forest here asking as far as what I'm trying to figure out what's going on here and what you said? Yes, that's right. Okay, and then I want to push you a little bit more then. What is it that your your uh, the business associates are saying that they think can be done uh, that would make it safe for consumers to get out and for them to open their businesses so that they know that they can function and and start uh, getting revenues and paying salaries and saying thank you to the state legislature for their help. It's a it's an interesting question, and I think there's a lot of different things. But it, it the one of the things you know we're all learning together, all of us in society, we're learning how to navigate this together. And one of the things that is becoming more apparent is that different types of activities that that may have some semblance of similarity in terms of uh, the transmissibility potential and, you know, of meetings um, may not may not actually transmit in kind of the same way. So, for example, uh, restaurants where, where people are eating across from one another, there's obviously a greater projection uh, possibility. So, you know, you have to look at restaurant activities in one way. And again, our, you know, our strong biases Let's innovate and work very hard at that problem so we can keep these restaurants open at all costs. But it is a little bit different from other kinds of activities. And so I, I don't know that I'm in a position to give a broad brush answer other than to say this. The bias ought to be for, you know, constant innovation as just as we're just as we're constantly learning this disease and how to react to it and cope with it. You know, from a public policy standpoint, that can often be kind of the lagging um, factor and like, let's just keep this real time across all these different kinds of industries and engage uh, engage the business leaders so they can come in and sit in these rooms and um, work on a problem, try to get to yes. That, I think that's the big idea. So what I hear you saying, uh, uh, Mike, is that uh, it would be nice if there was a, a, a continual real time interaction between folks uh, saying. What have we learned? Is there something here that can help us figure out how to open up things uh, a little bit more uh, aggressively without harming the, the health of the public? Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's right. And I, there are definitely people in government that are wired that way and are doing that. And I, and I don't want to try to start giving examples, but there are other pockets where it's not happening. And there are a lot of places where, you know, it, it's not about the intention. It's just about... The fact, you know, there can be in all in any human bureaucracy, there can be these kind of cumbersome, slow moving processes. That's what we got to get away from, like things that should take a month. We got to figure out how to condense those to a day, two, three days um, in all sincerity, because people are really being hurt. And we all know this. So, like, let's throw off the old rules as much as we can and just work with with real decisiveness and urgency. Well, I can tell you, Mike, that uh, being a banker and de- having a considerable amount of commercial real estate loans out and going around looking at some of the regional shopping centers, your small shopping centers, you've got to be uh, fearful. I know we are. You know, we've got loans out on some of those properties, and we're saying, hey, where are they going to find the tenants? And we're giving uh, forbearance, and we're helping people out. But at some point in time, you've got to figure out how do we how do we get those places full again with regards to people that might have the funds, and it's going to be take a while for people to get the capital to get back into those 
those stores and start opening up if they can. Speaker Becker, uh, I want to come back to you on this special session. And again, I think everybody is saying thank you, thank you, thank you. But was it as effective as you anticipated? And I'm not going to let you off the hook, but just answering yes. That uh, also, you know, where were there problems that you feel that we didn't address? Uh, and uh, how do we address them? Um, thanks, Earl, for the question. I mean, I don't, we don't think we sort of solved everything that needs solving with with this session. I think we look at it as a stopgap, kind of a bridge, hopefully to a, a time when either Congress acts or, you know, the, the pandemic subsides a little bit or a vaccine gets in place. So, you know, Colorado doesn't have the the same deep pockets that the federal government does. We have to have a balanced budget. We don't print money. Um, we did what we could. So I think that there's still lots of things that, that if Colorado has the money that it could do. But I think really, um, you know, A, we want to push on Congress to act. And B, you know, I, I agree with Mike that we have to keep innovating. And, you know, during this pandemic, the the governor has um, pretty broad emergency authority. And so his departments are constantly dealing with trying to figure out what emergency orders they should put in place. I've heard from, you know, a couple different business sectors saying, wait, this emergency order doesn't make sense. Can you help out? And I would encourage any any businesses, any business leaders to reach out to elected representatives to say, look, this is what just happened. This works for us or it doesn't work for us because that's what representation is. And, you know, any legislator um, is going to have, you know, pretty direct line to the governor's office to say, why did you do this? And, and can it be done differently? So I would encourage um, businesses who are who are facing um, any changes because of the pandemic that they like or don't like to let your legislator know um, and and see how they can be helpful. But, you know, the areas around that you asked, you know, what could what could still be addressed? I mean, we had a bill specifically to help restaurants there. Um, they collect sales tax and this bill just allows them to keep the sales tax themselves. And then we waived all licensing fees for, you know, restaurants and bars and um, vintners and things like that. Um, you know, they pay an annual licensing fee. Those fees usually cover inspections and and things like that. And so the state's just going to pick up that entire cost, but it's a good idea to help those entities just stay in business. I think, you know, there were other ideas that emerged that I think deserve more time and, and consideration. Some people brought up the idea of, you know, how are we helping the agricultural sector? I think that's something that's definitely going to get a look at um, in the coming session. Uh, folks talked about, well, you gave you let these um, restaurants and retail establishments keep um, sales tax. What about a deduction for certain types of employees? You know, a lot of people that work in the restaurant industry are unemployed right now. So, you know, what can you do for them? I think, I think legislators are open to all sorts of ideas and it doesn't have to be financial, right? It might be, you know, like we said, just sort of lifting this burden of applying or paying for a, a license. A lot of what the governor's doing is, waiving regulations, like making it easier people to keep their license for something, or, you know, it's just hard to get into um, a state department right now and, and deal with some of the, the things that, 
you normally have to deal with in the course of business. So I'd say keep those ideas coming to legislators. I, you know, there's, there isn't an endless supply of money. So whether they'll be able to keep providing relief, it kind of depends on, uh, uh, you know, how the state's doing. And, and like I mentioned, we, we could do what we did because Congress did what they did last spring. You know, that I think about seven, eight billion dollars came into the state um, in various forms of relief. And that just kind of kept the economy humming here. And um, but a lot of that dries up at the end of the year. So I, I think that there is more things that we can do with limited resources but the, but the key thing is really addressing the pandemic, really making sure that we are staying safe, that we aren't overwhelming hospitals, because when that happens is when the higher level of restrictions happen. Um, you know, if we want a, a return to a normal economy, we have to get the pandemic under control. And we're all, you know, planning and waiting and anticipating um, the vaccines that are coming and it's it's good to see that they're coming, you know, faster than a lot of people expected. We don't know how quickly they're going to get out, how effective they're going to be. So I think we just still have to, you know, on a personal level, take it upon ourselves to be as safe as we can, because that's what's going to make the quickest response to getting back to normal. As a, a banker, a mid-sized small business, not small, mid-sized business here in Colorado, uh, I can tell you the people we're talking to, uh, uh, the biggest challenge that businesses have to get started again is working capital. And I haven't seen anything being addressed by the state with regards to that. I know there's some things that are being done by the city of uh, Denver, but I would encourage the state legislature, a special session or the governor, if he's got some funds, somehow to put together a working capital uh, fund that somehow could be available for small businesses and mid-sized businesses to uh, have a chance to get started again, because oftentimes it takes twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars at a minimum for a restaurant to get the inventory they need just to open back up. And if they've been paying salaries and they've been paying fees and all that, they don't have twenty, thirty, forty thousand. And I can tell you that it's going to be difficult for them to get it from the financial community when they have been losing all sorts of money and and uh, the chances of them getting back in business has been minimized to some extent. So. I'd encourage you to take a look at that because that's, in my mind and from people I talk to, that's a huge hurdle. Is where do I get the working capital to get my business started again? Mike, I want to ask you if I could to, to follow up on your comments about business and and kind of the economy for Colorado. Let's let's take a quick look at how do you see the economy for Colorado evolving out of this pandemic? Where do you see the challenges that people are talking to you? over the next 12 months, and how do you see things evolving over a 36-month period of time? We've been kind of, uh, as an economy, uh, in, in a beautiful position relative to the rest of the states around the country up until December of uh, 2019. How do you see things evolving now? Yeah, it, it is interesting. We've, uh, all things considered, have fared fairly well, uh, but as I talk to CEOs across the state that are, you know, sharing with me their perspective on uh, especially small businesses and what's being done in the small business sector. Um, I mean, they're worried that thousands of these uh, will go away and, uh, and obviously that it would be just devastating. And then uh, we know that some, some will, 
Uh, and it really does a lot of it get back to your perspective on working capital, uh, which I certainly agree with. And, and I, I think the other part of it is uh, predictability and knowing what is going to come. You know, just as an example, we were talking, uh, you were talking about restaurants a moment ago. Um, it's different when an order comes down that says you are going to close this restaurant in two weeks than it is when an order comes down that says you're going to close tomorrow or in two days. Uh, because with two weeks, you at least have some time to get through some or if not all of your food inventories. When it's a couple of days, all, you know, you, you just have huge amounts of waste and, and lost money. So, you know, some of these cycles could probably be a little bit, you know, dispensed with, with a little, with a little bit better eye on, uh, on that predictability factor. But it's really hard for businesses to plan if they, if they're not sure what's coming down the road and, and to be successful, you know, in recovering as the economy um, begins to expand again when the uh, pandemic wraps up. And so from a, a public policy perspective, you know, we are asking our members what they're thinking about in a number of spe- uh, in a number of spheres. And one of them is what's their perspective of kind of the state, the overall state in Colorado of regulation. And they're very worried about it. I, I will tell you, it actually surprised me the level of intensity of their concern and worry about regulation, both from a cost standpoint and from um, a, a kind of a trajectory standpoint, as well as the predictability standpoint. And so I'll just speak to the trajectory standpoint a minute uh, for, for a second here. Um, we, uh, we, we ask questions in an annual survey of our CEOs, and, and for some of these questions, we give them a slider, you know, zero being sort of low intensity, 10 being high intensity. We ask questions about all manner of, of economic-related public policy questions, and one of the questions was, has, has it gotten more expensive from a regulatory standpoint in Colorado um, over the last five years? You know, what's your level of agreement that it has gotten more expensive? And it's, it's uh, I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but it's like 80% intensity. People really are worried about this. Um, and so it, I think it, a lot of it comes back to just knowing where where regulators are going, there's a lot of there's a lot of regulations uh, that are being promulgated right now that have far far-reaching uh, consequences, and and business leaders are paying attention to that. And but the issue for them is, I mean, the real handicapping issue is they don't they don't exactly know. It's not it's not knowable what the costs uh, will be and exactly what the timing will be of that stuff. So. You know, predictability and access to capital, I think, are going to be two major factors. Mike, I'd like to add to that if I could. Uh, you know, regulations are regulations. It doesn't matter if you have two people working for you or you have 2,000 people working for you. The regulations are there and everybody's uh, impacted equally. The only problem is, is the regulation can be a lot more burdensome on that smaller business than it can be on the larger business. And as a result, uh, when you have... Uh, 60, actually 75% of the of the working force in Colorado, and it's 150 people or less. It's disproportionate. Uh, the financial burden that might might materialize in regulations are just across the board. And I'm not trying to advocate for or against as much as just trying to make, you know, the uh, the the point that <clears throat> is a matter of everyday uh, trying to conduct a business here in Colorado, for which 
we all want to be here and we all love and we all want to make Colorado incredibly successful. But sometimes that burden can be a little bit disproportionately spread amongst those people that create the future jobs and create a large part of the employment for the state. Speaker Becker, I want to go back to you. You have been amazing as our in the state house. You've served since 2013 and speaker since 2017. And you've been so incredibly gracious uh, and willing to talk to us. Uh, I've had that experience, and we didn't necessarily, I guess, agree on the outcome, but we agreed that we had an issue, and you were nice enough to listen, and, and I guess compromise is better than no solution at all. And we came up, I think, with a compromise, and what I'm referring to, of course, is para. What do you, what do you see as the largest uh, accomplishments that uh, the state you know, has had and, and, and the challenges you had? Give us a little bit of reflection, if you would, please. Thanks. And quickly before I do that, you guys mentioned the need for access to capital. And I just want to mention, um, you know, one of one of Mike's members at Colorado Concern championed a bill this June um, uh, that led to what's called the Climber Fund. And it basically is a public-private partnership that creates a loan program um, by leveraging private investment um, for loans to Colorado small businesses. And the state puts in um, up to $30 million in first loss capital a few fiscal years in a row. Anyway, I think the state treasurer is still working on getting that um, money out. They're still setting up the, the program there. They're going to pay for it by issuing um, insurance premium tax credits. And one of the bills we passed is just a, a technical fix to make that more workable for the treasurer. But, you know, that was an idea that came forward uh, by Blair Richardson, who's one of Mike's members. Um, I'm sure you know him well too, Earl. And, you know, it was uh, really innovative and, you know, just a good example, I think, of someone saying, I think this is really where the need is. We need to um, have more capital available um, to businesses. And so with a lot of quick work this spring, um, <clears throat> the bill was written. It just takes a little bit more time to prop it up. But I, I did want to mention that because that might be something that you both want to um, track when it um, when it gets out the door. And I think that's supposed to happen in the next few weeks. Um, in terms of, you know, I think state the state of Colorado's doing really, really well. Obviously, we have a lot of people moving to Colorado. We have a strong economy. You know, our economy is diversifying. And, you know, that's exciting. I think, you know, Earl, you and I worked on the Parabill, and I think that's in better shape. I think, uh, you know, there's still room for improvement. Um, I think the fact that Colorado sort of tends to import all of its talent and maybe doesn't do as well in educating its own talent, I think is something that legislators going forward are going to have to keep working on. You know, obviously seeing how we come out of the coronavirus is going to matter a lot. And I think the state's going to have to make adjustments based on that. But it's been interesting, uh, you know, purely anecdotally, my husband's a real estate agent. All these people are coming to Colorado thinking, oh, time to get out of the big city during coronavirus. And, you know, just generating a lot of continued interest in the state because Colorado's seen as a you know, innovative place. It, you know, where I live in Boulder, all my neighbors are folks who've moved here because of the the entrepreneurial community. And, you know, Colorado's just absolutely built a reputation around being a hub for entrepreneur 
entrepreneurial activity. And so, you know, I think that's something Colorado's really done well. And <clears throat> I don't think the legislature really had a lot to do with that um, necessarily. I, you know, I think the quality of life that Colorado offers is something that um, attracts people to Colorado. It, you know, as we become a more technologically based country and world, and people can live and do their jobs from a lot of different locations, Colorado is just more and more appealing. Um, but I mentioned, you know, we're going to still have work to do around educating our own. I think there's more work to be done around infrastructure investment, something Mike and I have talked a lot about, you know, separately. I, you have to constantly be investing in, in your own business and you have to be constantly investing in your new state if you want to continue your success. And so I think that's something Colorado is going to have to look at going forward. Um, <clears throat> but we've had successes and you know, I think Para is an example of a, a really big success. I mean, the the state pension was really headed off a cliff. I think some people think we could have gone farther, but we reached a compromise that passed. And if we'd, you know, done too much or too little in any one direction, it may not have passed. But we got, you know, a, a $50 billion fund really headed in the right direction and in a way that's going to continue to support, you know, our teachers and state employees. So those things take compromise and Colorado has a reputation for actually finding compromise on a lot of things. And I think in the world right now, we see a lot more polarization and the, the tenor of civil discourse of the, the, the public discourse that we have right now tends to be hotter and hotter. And I think those are some trends that people are going to have to look out for going forward. You know, how can we maintain um, civility and bipartisanship in an increasingly partisan world? So as I talk to new legislators, that's one thing I really talk about is your job as a, as a leader is not only to advocate for your community, but to um, respect the institutions and ultimately get things done. And we'll see how it goes, but um, I hope Colorado can buck this trend of increased polarization. Speaker Becker and Mike, uh, I don't intend to put you on the hot seat, but uh, I want the two of you, if you could, to kind of respond to this, because you brought up a really, really good point here in the investing in Colorado. And, you know, you and Mike uh, work together. You don't necessarily agree from on various things, but you come down to solutions. And... It seems to me that we as Coloradoans have done a pretty doggone good job of being civil and trying to work with another. The last session is a great example of that, where we all tried to see what we had in front of us and we had a budget to work with. But I, I want to press an issue with the One of the biggest investments we have in our state's future is education. There are other things that we have that, that, are, that have been enormously influenced by outside People outside of Colorado. Some of my, my friends in the business community look at each other and say, wait a minute, you know, is this Colorado that's being influenced here or are we being influenced by people outside that are creating some animosity within Colorado? How do we protect ourselves so we keep the uniqueness of our state where we can get together and not have the outside influences come in and try to buy propositions or try to buy referendums or come in and try to uh, scale our educational system one way or another versus what we want. Mike, why don't you uh, take a crack and, 
And uh, Speaker Becker, I'm going to let you have the final say, so you can correct anything you wanted to wanted to uh, say to Mike. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> well, I, it's, I think it's a magnificent question. Uh, a couple of reflections. One, the the speaker has something that I think a lot of people could learn from, and that is, she is a fierce combatant. <laughs> and I know this. We, I mean. We've really had some knockdown drag outs and I know other people have too. And I like that because it is trying to get to solutions. It's like not just shouting to maintain a, a position. It's, um, or, or I shouldn't say shouting Casey, but it's, you know, like just being passionate and going after your argument, but you're trying to get to an outcome. And I think like that pursuit of functionality is rewarded because it is, because there's a, a self evident authenticity about it. It's very different from other kind of politics that are just kind of like drive by and cheap, you know, no engagement, you know, you can't move people. They start with these kind of propositions that are immovable and, you know, where's negotiation possibly going to go from there. And so I think, you know, people like the speaker have modeled this. Um, I know as an example, I was thinking about what you were saying with para, you know, the para bill, bills like that come at cost. Uh, political cost, and I'll just say that. I hope you don't mind me saying that, Casey. They, they come at cost to the to the sponsors because you're 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 aggravating some people you prefer not to aggravate, and you're not entirely making happy the people that you'd like to make happy. So you're kind of in this no man's land. But it's work that needs to be done. So I, I think there's a really good model there. Another reflection I would just offer. You know, we we focused on uh, a lot this last fall on this uh, statewide ballot issue, this family medical leave ballot issue. Most of the money for that came from uh, Virginia. Yeah, it, by most, I mean nine-tenths nine of it. It was it was massive. And so whatever the issue is, and I, w I won't just pick yeah, on that 90, issue. 90% of the money, yeah. So the question is why? Why? Like, can't Colorado dictate its own, its own public policy course? I mean, there's a – I guess the point I was going to make is there's a disenfranchisement that happens in that, whether it's the right trying to exert their will from out of state or the left. And, you know, when you look at this in the microcosm, it's interesting. I know the speaker has probably seen this in her party's politics. I certainly have in my party's politics. You know, you get these like special um, elections or these vacancies when a legislator leaves. One of the worst things often that happens is for all of the elected class, you know, and whatever party it happens to be, to come in and tell that district what they ought to do, how they ought to respond, who they ought to put in. People really don't like that. And so I think, I think you see the same thing at a state level. And there's a, I think the reason is because you lose agency when that happens. You lose agency over the, the direction that you want your state to have. We're the ones that live here. We're the ones that pay taxes here. We're the ones that invest here. A prescription is, I think, fairly elusive, but I think we need to lean into it. And one thing I've thought about is, is having uh, sort of a, you know, let's call it a council, for lack of a better word, of of just real opinion leaders from right, left, and middle, like people of real stature that bark at these things when they happen. And, you you know, to raise public awareness and, and to try to push back on that and let us maintain our own agency in Colorado. I think it's really very um, important that we do that uh, from a you know a function a state function a public policy functionality standpoint. Mike, thank you, uh, Speaker Becker. I'd be most interested in any comments you want to follow up with, and any corrections to Mike's comments will be 
I don't <laughs> corrections. Um, no, I mean, I agree with Mike. Look, you know, outside money comes in on the left or the right. Um, when, you know, change makers um, in the state, outside of the state, see an opportunity. On both sides of the aisle, I think, are usually motivated by very worthwhile sentiments. They may not be, I may not share those sentiments, or you may not share those sentiments. I think what that means is that at the legislature, the people involved in any particular issue need to work harder to solve the problem themselves, because otherwise you are going to have outside money come in. I mean, you guys mentioned, or Mike, you mentioned paid family leave. I, I think I would mention the income tax cut Proposition 116, you know, there was a lot of outside money to support that. And so, you know, how can we within the Capitol building um, and with outside stakeholders in Colorado do a better job of of meeting the needs and of, of you know, folks who are raising these issues? And, you know, it kind of goes back to legislators are hearing from their constituents if you don't like what the legislator's doing, you have to make sure that they're hearing different, getting different input. You know, you have to make sure there are folks in their communities and their, in the districts they represent saying, you know, I actually have a different opinion. And that's hard to keep that level of engagement up. And, and I think what happens is different groups just solely focus on their own base and don't reach across the aisle and you know, look, you, you may not be able to get me, you know, in line with exactly what you want to do, but I certainly should be listening. And I certainly should, you know, understand what all the different perspectives are, especially as, you know, a leader of a chamber and someone who isn't representing just my district, but is really tasked with thinking about the state as a whole. So I guess I sort of put the onus back on others to say, how are you engaging and making sure you're not talking just to your, just to your own choir, you know, are you actually talking across the aisle and to people who may not be your natural allies? And I just think that's so important. Um, and I think it's also, you know, it's important in, in how you make policy and it's important in how we conduct ourselves. And as a state, you know, are we communicating well and, and can we have, as I mentioned, you know, good conversations and good discourse and hear a variety of opinions. I just think that's how, states people should be. So I don't know if that answers your question, Earl, but I think, you know, I, I, I do think Colorado going forward needs to purposefully try to buck the trend of just paying attention, just listening to the people who already agree with you. Mike, Speaker Becker, I can't thank you all enough for what I consider to be a very, very uh, enlightening conversation. And starting from uh, the pandemic and what are we trying to do at the you know, current time with the legislative action. Thank you, Speaker Becker. And Mike, thank you so much for representing the businesses in the state of Colorado and giving us your insights and uh, as to where the state is presently with businesses and the economy and where you think we might be going. Everybody, thank you for joining us in this podcast. Thank Thanks, you. Earl. Thanks, Madam Speaker. Good to be with you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Earl. It was a lot of fun, and, and thanks for doing it. Thanks for caring. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. 
preceding episode, along with all others, is available on Podcatchers Everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.